want you to turn your Bibles this morning to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a text that I think is probably somewhat uh, familiar to many of us as we would uh, read through it. We're going to begin our study uh, this morning in verse 7 of chapter 4. But before we get into the text, I want to I note a phrase that I think kind of captures the thrust of this passage as a whole. If, so this text, as I was studying it a few weeks ago in preparation, I, I noticed that in verse 1 of chapter 4, and at the beginning of verse 16, which really is kind of like the last sentence of the text, you have this statement that says, therefore we do not lose heart or we don't give up. You'll see it in verse 1 and you'll see it in verse 16, okay? And I think that this text has those statements functioning as parentheses and that what comes in between and surrounds it helps us to understand how or why we don't give up, okay? So Paul has a concern that there is a tendency on the part of believers to, in the pressures of life, the real pressures of real life, to fade or to grow weary or to, it, the, the word literally can mean to give in to evil, okay? There's a, a, there's a persistent tendency on our part to cave to the pressure of trying to stand up because the waves repeatedly come and after a while we get tired and weary and we want to give in to the prevailing pressures. Now, Paul makes a bold statement. He says, we, therefore, we don't give up. And I want to focus our attention on verse 16, where Paul places the word therefore before the we don't give up, okay? Because I think that that therefore stands for a purpose. It, it tells us that what comes before is the reason why Paul does not give in to evil, does not grow weary or give up, okay? And I think in this observation from his own life. We don't give up. I, and I was trying to think, is this a promise? Is this a command? Or is this just simply the testimony of a man of God who has walked with God consistently and faithfully, has fallen so deeply in love with Christ that he knows that I won't give up because I'm convinced that this is the path and plan of God for my life. Now, I think when Paul says that, we don't give up. I think Paul is tapping into what I believe is a universal desire. I don't, I don't think anyone wants to give up. I don't think anybody lives passionately saying, I got to find a way to fail or to quit. Okay? Most of you did not come here this morning with the hope that I would say something that is so profoundly and fundamentally discouraging that you would grasp it, lay hold of it, and say, that's what I was looking for this morning. I wanted someone to knock the wind out of my sails. No, you, you come into the house of God to hear the word of God, hopefully to be challenged and convicted, but also to be encouraged, to, to find fresh wind filling your sails by the power of the Spirit as the truth of his word is proclaimed and owned in our hearts. That we would leave saying, you know what? More so, I don't want to give up. Right? I find that I am being renewed and refreshed by the experience of my walk with God. So we all have this desire and should never give up. 
as we come into this new year, may God grant to us as a church family made up of individuals this conviction that we desire to finish well in spite of the trials and in spite of the struggles that we know will be part of the life that we face in 2017. And in spite of the joys that we know will be part of this year, may God grant us the desire to say, God, I want to be found at the end of the year faithful. The truth is that we all will face circumstances that cause us to want to give up, to fold, to faint. And I'm always mindful when I study this topic of persistence and patience in the Christian life. I'm always mindful of the fact that Jesus, my Savior, wrestled with the desire to quit in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I love how transparent the text is that in the garden, Jesus wrestles with his father and says, Father, I don't want to do this. I want to quit. Nevertheless, I want your will more than I want anything else. Do you remember that struggle? And I hope that that, I hope that, that encourages you that that struggle in and of itself is not sinful. That tendency that emerges in our lives at times in and of itself is not sinful. We need to fight that and combat that in the power of the Spirit of God. And I believe this text aims to help us to not give up and grow weary and to give in to evil. And that therefore, in context, looks back to the preceding verses. And I think the preceding verses in the flow begin in verse 7, where Paul's going to list for us reasons that he doesn't give up in verse 16. So verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart. Why, Paul? Well, because of what comes before. And so from verse 7 through 15, I want to cover off on a couple convictions or reasons that Paul has for why he refuses, why he will not give up and cave in. So let's begin reading in verse 7. Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, not destroyed. We are always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death, yes, is at work in us. But life is at work in you. So what reasons does Paul give us in this passage of Scripture for why he can say, I will never give up? What are the reasons? And I think the first one is found in verse 7. He, he makes this beautiful claim. He says, we, the people of God, and particularly Paul as an apostle of Christ, have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, what is Paul saying? If you go back, and you, you almost have to do this, you almost have to go back into verses 5 and 6 to understand what the treasure is that is present in the earthen vessel of Paul's life. And so 
Notice what he says in verses 5 and 6. He says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in us, or, or made, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Now, here's what I think Paul is saying as his first conviction that drives him to not give up. He has an understanding that I am, I have a calling from God. Okay, I have a task, a specific calling from God. Paul is conscious of the fact that he is in ministry by virtue of God's sovereign plan. I have a calling from God. I am his chosen vessel to take the treasure of Christ to others. Now, here's the way Paul acknowledges this becoming a chosen vessel. In verse 6, he says, God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, which is a reference back to creation and the miracle of light coming in the midst of darkness. Here's what Paul says. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, and it was good, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And what is Paul saying? I think in some way, Paul says, I won't give up. I have a calling for God. That calling began when the light of Christ shone into the life of Paul. Now, I can refer back to creation, Genesis 1. And see that there was darkness and God said, let there be light. And by fiat, by miracle of creation, out of nothing, light booms into existence, right? I can then look at the Apostle Paul's life, a very dark life in Acts chapter 9. And what happens is Paul's on the road to Damascus. Here's how Paul recounts it. He says, a brilliant light shone from heaven that knocked me to the ground and changed my life. Paul, what does Paul do? Paul refers back to his conversion. When the God who created light created light in his heart by a miracle of divine creation, God sovereignly, sovereignly chose Paul as a vessel for his purpose to make the glorious light of Christ known. Folks, the truth of conversion is that it is a miracle. It is being born again by the power of God. It is God infusing into your life the glorious light of the gospel of Christ by a miracle of new birth and conversion. He changes your heart. He flips the switch and out of darkness comes light. Here's what Paul is conscious of. God has put the glory of Jesus into a fragile vessel. And here's how Paul describes it. He says, we are... Clay jars, clay pots, containers that are, and, and the word clay pot simply means something that would be utterly ordinary and not valuable, kind of like buckets, okay? Over the church building in my garage, we have five-gallon buckets, okay? They used to hold spackle, all right? And, and I, tr I don't treat those buckets like I treat my wife's dishes, okay, because those buckets, to me, don't have value, but they can contain something. The beauty of the bucket is not the bucket itself. It's what it's capable of doing, okay? And what is Paul saying? We have this treasure 
placed into ordinary vessels. So the folks, you, in order to be used by God and to not give up, do not have to be some extraordinary person. Now, what is Paul saying? God took an ordinary man and infused him with the gospel light of Christ and utterly transformed the purpose of his existence. He took a frail, unattractive, ordinary person and chose him to make clear the glory of the gospel of Christ. And that's one of the reasons. Paul says, you want to know a reason I won't give up? Because God, by a miracle, changed my heart. He allowed a frail, undeserving vessel to contain the very precious word and knowledge of the person of Christ. And as people see the person of Christ revealed in the vessel of Paul's life, they see the glory of God. And Paul understands that is a responsibility that I have as a convert of Jesus to make known the glory of his name to the nations. Paul says, I won't give up on that. That thought drives me and compels me. I am most powerful when I, when I am least reliant upon my own resources. Folks, look. A lot of times we survey our lives and we see our profound and many weaknesses and we allow it to discourage us. Isn't that true? We see our calling from God to take the light of Jesus to others. And then we look at our weaknesses and we think, who do I think I am? Right? We are very good at self-discouragement, at believing the lie. And what Paul says, I'm a frail vessel. There's nothing special about me, but the one who resides in me is glorious. And so the vessel doesn't matter. It's what's inside that matters. And that is glorious. He chose you and I. And he wants to use us. And I, I, I would argue that that is a profoundly humbling truth. And I believe it is a glorious truth. Paul says, I won't give up because God by a miracle of conversion, brought me into his family and tasked me with containing the treasure of Christ. And I think Paul's saying something like this. I dare not think so much of myself that I keep that treasure to myself. One of the reasons Paul would never give up is because he trusts the sovereign calling of God. Secondly, he trusts the sovereign plan of God in his life. this, This is a fascinating text to me because... Paul talks about having the treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is God's and not ours. And then in, in verse 8 and following, down through verse 10, he, he, he's going to give us a, or verse 9, he's going to give us a list of the struggles that he faces. Okay, so he knows that he's called by God, but he also knows that God is sovereign in the outworking of that plan in his life. And so you're going to, as you read Paul's experience, you're going to think, if I was Paul, I would be profoundly tempted to give up. And why? Because of the difficulty of the circumstances and the persistent nature of the struggle and difficulty that Paul faces. But he says, I trust in the sovereign hand of God in my life. I don't look at my circumstances and say, God, why me? As an accusation. I look at the circumstances in my life and I say, okay, God, why me? That in the struggles and in the pain and in the suffering, Paul's looking for the hand of God. He's looking for the purpose of God. He's looking for the reason of God. In that, he so deeply trusts in the sovereignty of God that he now will list for us his real struggles, 
that are real serious. He says, we are pressed hard, but not crushed. Okay, and I, as, as you think through these things, when you think about your own life and the experiences and the, the troubles that you face, and what Paul's going to say is that I'm hard-pressed, but I'm not crushed. And in every one of these statements, you're going to sense that there is a divine, sovereign limitation placed by God upon the trouble that Paul is facing so that he doesn't give up. Do you see? So he says, I am hard-pressed, but I am not annihilated. I know what pressure is, but God has never let me be flattened out. Secondly, he says, we are perplexed. And the idea means at a loss. You ever face that? With circumstances in your life where you're saying, God, I don't understand this. But notice what Paul says, in contrast, but not despairing. Confused, but not hopeless. Here's what I think Paul means in, a, in this perplexed but not despairing. I think he's saying, I am stressed, but I am not stressed out. Okay, stressed out means what? My, my mind is going like haywire. Like I can't control it. But Paul's saying, I know what it is to be under stress. But God has never let me be obliterated by it. That's beautiful. He says, verse 9, we are persecuted. Literally, the word means hunted down on the run. But then Paul says this is, but never abandoned. That in that running, in that fling, God is with me. Isn't that the, isn't that the testimony of David when he goes to En Gedi, fleeing from Saul, that God was there and he hid under the pinions, under the wings of, of Heavenly Father? That yes, I know what it is to be hunted down like that, but not deserted in difficulty by God. When I thought of that, when I thought of this, I thought, but Christ was hunted down and forsaken for me. See, the reason I don't need to be forsaken is that Christ was forsaken for me. The reason I don't have to be pushed out of the presence of God is because by the blood of Christ, I can boldly come near to his presence to find help in my time of need so I can know what it is to be persecuted, but never abandoned, left in the lurch. And then Paul lastly says, we get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. We are not finished off and knocked out, down, but not out. Now, I want you to think about how these statements all function, okay? All of them talk about an experience and then talk about a limitation on the experience, okay? And, and I think it's important that we as Christians realize as when we are tempted to give up that God who loves us and sent his son for us is sovereign in his control of all of our circumstances so that it may, so though it may be difficult, it is not destroying in its effect. It is instead shaping in its effect when it is responded to and embraced properly. And I'll come to that when I get to the end of this discussion. This catalog of hardships in Paul's life caused cracks, as it were, one said, in his earthen vessel, but the vessel remains intact, though fractured. I got buckets like that. They're good for some things. They're not good for other things, okay? Fractured buckets aren't good for carrying water, but they're good for carrying, uh, you know, plumbing parts or something like that. 
Okay, Paul says, I know what it is. The vessel is held together, he says, by divine, by the power of divine adhesive. And the light that shines through these cracks is none other than the light of the life of Christ. Folks, that's why we don't give up. The breaking and the troubling that does not destroy and utterly knock out is producing, it's working, it's shining. The light of Christ. Why did God put the treasure into regular, ordinary people? He did it so that we would not be amazed and fascinated with personalities. This is one of the troubling things to me as a pastor is, and and believe me, I don't have any, I'm never tempted to think that you guys see me in this way, okay? Just set the record straight. I am troubled at times by the celebrity status of people in the body of Christ. It's troubling. It should be concerning to us. We are all regular, frail vessels that God can mightily use as life beats against the pot and it fractures, held together by divine adhesive, shining the light of Christ. Folks, God doesn't need special people to do his work. He needs committed people who trust in his sovereign plan, who know that they are called by God, converted by a miracle of God's grace. That's who God wants to use. And one writer said this. He said, God did not send out Superman, and I almost put Superwoman, just to tell you how knowledgeable my, uh, and Wonder Woman, to change the world. He sent people like you and me. Why? Because it doesn't need super people. He needs surrendered people who will embrace their suffering, not reject it, but embrace it and say, God, show me your plan and show me your purpose through my brokenness. Reveal Jesus. That's what he wants to do. God aims to cause me to trust in him. Paul trusted in the sustaining grace of God in his frail vessel and saw divine power at work in and through his weaknesses. The secret of Paul's ministry, the secret of not giving up for you and I, lies in a deep trust in the power of God to enliven weak, frail efforts. Paul knew that God works even through his limitations and failures. And so he said, we do not give up. You see, you can read Paul's I don't give up as a brag, as a boast. Or you can look at it and say, I want whatever he has. Because what I sense as I read this, here's a frail vessel saying, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. I'm not going to yield to evil. What difficult circumstance in your life are you viewing as an excuse to give up instead of an opportunity to advance? What is God allowing to come? so that you might cling to him and trust him more as your sovereign Lord. Next part of the text, verse 10. Another reason Paul doesn't give up. Paul says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then, here's the conclusion Paul says, death is at work in us, a giving away of ourselves. 
but life is at work in you. So Paul could see through his suffering, people were coming to know Christ. I think the third reason in this text for why Paul doesn't give up is that he wants to make Jesus known to more and more people. That seems to be the driving thrust of verses 10 through 12. Paul says, I want more and more people to know about Christ. Therefore, I won't give up. Verses 10 through 11, Paul sees his suffering as an extension of Christ's suffering. We are being given over to death, verse 11 says, for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. His suffering is an extension and manifestation of Christ's suffering. Not in the sense that Paul is completing what Christ began, but that he is manifesting the work of Christ, the suffering of Christ for redemption through his own suffering. It makes it, if you will, believable and seeable. He was ready to make ultimate sacrifice so that others would know Jesus. Verse 12, he says, so then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And I think what Paul is saying is this, my suffering is benefiting you, and for that reason, I will not give up. My suffering is making Jesus tangible and visible for you. Therefore, I will not give up. He is not driven by a selfish desire to get out of his suffering. And folks, I think this, and if there's one tendency that we have, it's that when struggle comes, the first thing we want is deliverance, right? And I think what Paul's saying is the first thing I want is people to see Christ in my response to the struggle. I want to see God use that struggle for his glory and for the good of others. I think that's a, a, a driving thrust that emerges in this text. And I think also it's fascinating that Paul wants people to be made known through his body, the clay pot he's talked about, through this physical, visible instrument in which he suffers and powerfully declares and manifests the glory of Christ. What is Paul saying? I think Paul's saying, I'm not going to waste my pain. I want my pain and my struggle and my suffering to be a megaphone or a magnifying glass for the grace of God that is at work in my life through Christ. I believe one of the greatest impediments to selfless, Christ-like living is my desire for comfort here and now. My response to trouble is not to embrace it joyfully. My response is to say, God, I want out of this and I want peace back in my life. I want joy back in my life. I want pleasantness back in my life. I want orderliness back in my life. This inordinate desire for comfort, for ease, for security, for me personally, is embarrassing at times. It's something I wrestle with internally. I want things to go smoothly. I want my life to be neat and orderly. I want it to be fun. Only when I embrace the selfish attitude of Christ that Paul encourages me to have in Philippians 2, have this mind in you which also was in Christ Jesus, the mind of a servant that is willing to understand that I have the privilege of making Christ known to others through the suffering that God allows to come into my life. That's why I have great respect for people 
that I have gotten to know in my life. And I, I, I think just when I thought through those that serve Christ as missionaries in our church family, I thought of Marie Kira. The reason most people struggle with that level of sacrifice is because it is not appealing and attractive to us. The reason when someone decides to give up a portion of their life in order to care for the needs of someone who is in desperate need, the reason that's not attractive to us, because I want life on my terms. I'm more concerned about my happiness than I am with the gospel of Christ being known. That's what I wrestle with. I'm a pastor. I wrestle with that. I wrestle with what it is to live on the selfless path of Christ. Think of people like Victor John who sacrificed so much of their emotional energy and life now into his 60s to make Christ known. And I talked to him on the phone. You know what he covets? He covets knowing that people are aware of the struggle and pray. And he never asked that you would pray that God takes him out of trouble. He never asked that, but that God would use it. I, I'm, just, I'm just telling you, I don't think so. that's where I live, to my shame. I don't know that I want to make Jesus known to people that much that I'm willing to suffer so that it might happen. And yet I will tell you that the greatest joy in my life is when someone comes to Christ. It, it resonates with the heart of a believer when people come to believe. When God says, let the light shine in the darkness of that heart. That there is something in you as a believer that resonates with that and says, yes, God. But I think the reason I don't see as much of that in my life as I should is because of my battle with selfishness and wanting my life to be comfortable. This aim of making Christ known kept Paul from giving up in spite of his suffering and because it was being fulfilled through his suffering. He doesn't give up. In verse 13 and 15, I'll just try to, try to capture this one for you relatively quickly. Notice what it says. This is a quote from Psalm 115. The writer says, it is written, and then a quote from Psalm 115, I believed, therefore I am speaking. Okay, now, what is it? It's, the context of Psalm 115 is the psalmist in the midst of a struggle. And in that struggle, he is... He is He's laying hold of his faith in God and speaking about the glory of God in spite of the circumstances he is facing, okay? What he believes about God is sustaining him in the midst of being pursued and persecuted. And the Apostle Paul reaches back and grabs that mindset, that conviction. I believe that God is good. I believe that God is sovereign. I believe that God has called me. Therefore, I don't give up, and therefore, I speak. I proclaim, and notice how he does it. He says, I believe, therefore, I have spoken. The things that come previously about the glory of God and the power of God and the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I'm speaking those things because I believe them experientially. I know them to be true in my suffering. He says, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore we speak. Because we know that he who, that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this, Paul says, is for your benefit so the grace 
that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Now, I think what Paul is saying, if I was to summarize those verses, I think what Paul is saying is something like this. I don't give up because I love God and want to see him glorified. And I love people and want to see them trusting Jesus. Paul says, in my suffering, I find my faith is being affirmed by the Spirit. He is convincing me. I believe, therefore I speak. And I don't give up in doing that because I love God and want to see him glorified. And I love people and want to see them in Christ. The driving motivation of Paul's life. Loving God and loving others through his physical body. Folks, isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done, so that they may be yours. Paul's saying, whatever it takes, I will not give up because I love God and I love people. Paul says, gospel silence in exchange for unity, in exchange for sympathy, is not an option. I believe it, and I must proclaim it. It must be made known. All this suffering is beneficial to others and glorifies God. And I think what Paul is saying is, these circumstances that come in my life, I don't, I don't want to escape them more than anything. I want to embrace them and invest them so that God will be glorified and people will be attracted to Jesus. I love the, the last part of this verse. He says, more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. That more and more people will give praise to God as they work through their difficult circumstances. Folks, I believe, understanding that suffering is beneficial to others and glorifies God is a profound key to standing firm. I believe this is the grand motive of not quitting in spite of suffering, and it, and it should drive how we view the trouble that we will face in 2017. Folks, look, I mean, let's be honest. In a room of 200 people, many of us, and I, in my own uh, season of life, am increasingly becoming conscious and aware of the fact that there will, in my life, be grief. How will I respond to it? In this last year, we uh, my wife and I faced what for me has been, uh, I would say, probably the most difficult thing that I have faced. My wife and I both have our parents. I had one grandparent that I knew, and when he passed away, my heart was broken at 16 years old. But it, it was hard, but I, can I say that it didn't seem that hard? My grandfather was older, and I, I kind of knew that that was coming, and so I'd adjusted to that. Uh, what came in October of this year for our daughter and Andrew It caught me off guard. And it caught them off guard. But not really. 
I've said to my daughter a number of times over the last few months, you have made this easy for us. Not the loss, but the process. Because in their response, there was no hint of why me or how dare God. Not a hint. Folks, I want to make an observation as a pastor. Okay? My observation is this. Most of us in our grief are very selfish in our thinking. Is that a fair observation? Do you understand what I'm saying by that? I tend to want people to come into my life and comfort me and understand how I'm feeling. I want, you know, it, it, it can become fascinatingly and absurdly for a Christian about me. And I didn't see that. I didn't see a rejection of grief. I saw an embrace of grief. And here's the conclusion I came to. The conclusion I came to in my heart, and I think this is by the Spirit that I shared this at the funeral. I think grief exposes you before it changes you. And I think the grief that my daughter and her husband have faced was a terrible beauty, a tragic beauty. Because what I saw was hearts deeply saddened there was no attempt to minimize the grief and the sorrow. No, no attempt to mitigate it. No attempt to explain it away. Nothing like that. A full embrace of that. But without despair. I called my daughter one day. I said, how's it going? She said, Dad, I'm good. She said that the OBGYN doctors are severely concerned that I'm not expressing despair. They want me to be broken. She said, I'm really sad. I mean, as sad as I could possibly be to the deepest part of my being. But I'm not laying in bed in the morning despairing. I'm holding on to Christ. And there, I think what made the difference was as this unfolded, moving towards them planning this funeral service four days after this tragic loss was the desire to make Christ known. And folks, nothing will mitigate the devastating effects of grief and pain and suffering like saying, God, use me. It's not meaningless. The suffering I'm going through, the struggle, the loss is not meaningless. If you love God and love people, in your grief, you won't make it about you. And, and you've got to wrestle to get there. Please understand what I'm saying. My daughter demonstrated a maturity that I do not have. And it was so clear. And I want that for our church. I want that for myself. That there would be such a desire to make Christ known, that, that I would be compelled by loving God, wanting him glorified, and loving people, making Christ known, that it would pull me through that stuff faster and in a more glorious way. 
not in a pitiful, despairing way. Sad, deeply sad, grieving, yes, because that's real. But not destroyed. So my last thought this morning is this real quickly. When you go into verse 16, Paul gives us what I think is central to the text. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, life is ebbing away. It's flowing from us, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And what Paul's going to walk into is a contrast between what is temporal and what is eternal. He has a matrix in his mind that this body is temporal. It's breaking. I have... I have so many different pains in my body as a result of the last three years of physical labor that I'm like, I didn't even know these parts existed, okay? I, I, this, is, this is not funny, okay? But I started sleeping on the opposite side of the bed, right? Because I said to my wife, I keep waking up at night because when I am rolling, it's just the, the, the shoulder that's injured, okay, this one, it doesn't, I need to be on the other side of the bed. We literally switched sides to the beds after 32 years of marriage, Okay, there's stuff going on in this body. I don't know how to explain it. All right, it's fading away. What is Paul saying? Paul says, outwardly, we're fading away, and that's normal. I can't resist that. I don't have hope that that's going to stop. I'm not a fool. But what does Paul say? Yes, as that's happening, inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Okay, and I'm going to tell you this. Your suffering will increase your apprehension of glory and renewal. Because you will start to let go of the temporal things that are incessantly and definitely fading. Something's going out of you. But here's what Paul says. Something is coming into me. I am being renewed day by day. And so as a result, how does Paul look at his life? He says, the affliction I have, look at the text, light and momentary. It's a trifle. It's light. And it's momentary. Folks, I would challenge you. To look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, this is Paul's struggle that he calls light and momentary. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was peddled with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move, persecuted. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger in the sea. I feel like I'm reading a Dr. Seuss book. In danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I know hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Folks, I want to tell you something. Paul calls that light and momentary. That is lifelong. But in comparison to eternity, it is nothing. Somehow, by the power of the Spirit, Paul had gained in his suffering a grasp of heaven that was converting how he looked at life here. He was changing it. And Paul says, that's why I don't give up. And it's how I don't give up. He says, and just, just, just catch these verses with me. Verse 17. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving, and this is present tense. They are continuing to work out or to bring about to provide 
for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. That list, Paul says, is like putting popcorn balls on one side of a scale and granite rock on the other. There's going to be an explosion. The comparison is so silly. My suffering, boom, gone. But he says, what God is producing in me, weighty, heavy, like the glory of God from the Old Testament. Here's what Paul says. It is achieving. It is producing, which is to say what? My troubles are light and momentary, but they are not without purpose. They're not meaningless. Does that make sense? God wants to achieve. God wants to produce something through them that is glorious and beautiful. Don't say that a cancer diagnosis is meaningless. I don't get it. I know it doesn't make sense. Don't say that it's meaningless. Paul says it's achieving. Don't say that the death of a grandchild is meaningless. It's working something. Don't say that the car accident or the slander or the rejection or the financial reversal or the change in job or the change in an important opportunity or your child's rebellion or your dad's fading heart is meaningless. God designs and desires to use it when I yield to the power of his spirit who wants to change me. Let's see what Paul's saying. Paul says, I have all kinds of reasons why I don't give up. And here's how I don't. I look at my momentary afflictions and I see them in light of eternal glory. And I realize that in between, God is continually achieving for me a greater glory that causes me to say, I'm okay with this because I have this. Paul says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Because what is seen is momentary. And what's coming to us as God's children is eternal. May God help us to lay hold of eternity so strongly that in 2017, the temptation to give up will come. But we will not fold under its pressure. And folks, when you suffer, in your workplace. When you lose something very precious, people are watching. And people are asking the question, will his, will her faith hold up? Is it real? Does it have substance? Does it sustain? Is it genuine? And may our response to grief, may we not waste it, but may we lay hold of it and say, God, glorify your name. Folks, through his great suffering, Jesus glorified God. In the garden, he says, after asking, can it pass? No, then I receive it. Father, glorify your name. Folks, that's the cry of the Christian. Not bound to the temporal, but adhered to the eternal not wasting our pain. Father, this morning, I pray that our hearts will meditate on the truth of this text. God, I, 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 this text at some levels baffled me and at some levels blessed me. God, I want to love what's coming so much, treasure the joy that will be found with you so much that it enlivens my life now.
and it gives me hope and joy in spite of the struggles and trials and griefs that come. Because, Lord, it's not a matter of if they will come, but when. And may we be prepared to love God and to love people in all things. Help us, Lord, as we sing to trust in you and to go from this place today saying, God, in my circumstance, I want you to be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said,